Can we talk something else? Can we talk about something else? Hello, out there. For all of the vehicles that have driven past the modest home with barred windows at 3825 Norton Avenue in South LA, large ruts should be worn in the asphalt. Gawkers in private vehicles, rented cars, tour buses, Try to imagine today what it looked like as a vacant lot, surrounded by acres of vacant lots, nearly four generations ago. They pull up images on their cell phones to compare the mundane before them to a monster's handiwork, splayed out in grainy photos on news pages from the time and eating up image displays of history's worst atrocities following an internet search. But you can't tell from the location now what had been there before. Inhumanely parceled parts, left nude, disemboweled. A brutality so grotesque, so galling, so fascinating that thousands meander past each year just so they can tell their buddies over beers that they'd been there. That they'd stood in the place where seven decades before, the mutilated, dissected, desecrated body of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, had been found on a cold January morning in the shadow of 1947 Hollywoodland. But the tourists don't linger long here. There are other sights to see. Just a short drive ten miles east takes them to the affluent tree-lined streets of Brentwood. There is a condo here on the murder map, just blocks off Wilshire Boulevard, a stone's throw from the Brentwood Country Club. Though the view from the street is hidden behind palm trees, what you can see, a terracotta brick walkway, brings flashbacks of the crimson-soaked pictures captured in June of 1994 at 879 South Bundy Drive. It was here that Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were slain. Nicole's estranged husband, the Heisman Trophy-winning O.J. Simpson, would be accused. The circus began with fans of the retired football player cheering in support of him as he threatened to kill himself in the back seat of his best friend's slow-moving Bronco and culminated in gavel-to-gavel coverage of the murder trial. Yet, despite overwhelming circumstantial evidence pointing to his guilt, when the damn glove didn't fit, the jury did acquit on live broadcast television watched around the world. Since the time of public hangings that drew scores of packed stage wagons from neighboring counties, to pictures on social media of smiling friends posing on the same train trestle in Delphi, Indiana, from which two young girls disappeared only to be found murdered. Grief tourism has been a thing. The same tours can be found in Chicago as dark tourists visit the corner where H.H. H. Holmes once lorded over tenants, 
robbing them of their lives in a building built specifically for murder. It can be found in Germany and Poland, where the pall and horror of staggering grief still hangs heavy over grey concentration camps. In Paris, where sightseers retrace the final limousine ride for Princess Diana as she and her billionaire boyfriend were hounded by paparazzi. In New York City, where more than 2,600 Americans were leveled in one day by terrorists, along with two of the world's most iconic towers. So it's no surprise that in May 1927, tens of thousands of curiosity seekers drove through miles of corn-laced highways to invade a tiny Midwest hamlet where a demented farmer, his heart black from either bitterness or madness, set his sights on a community and destroyed a region's peace for generations to come. Welcome to Dark Topic, I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 020, The Demented Farmer of Bath. date was in the spring of 1927. The place was Bath, Michigan, a farming township of 300 people, 12 miles outside of the capital of Lansing. Each spring, as the fields were being tilled for the coming crops, the students of Bath Consolidated School would gear up to enter summer break. Farm kids don't get the break city kids do. Summers on a farm are filled with early mornings and hard work. Still, with the lilacs in bloom and the freedom of summer days on the horizon, there was joy in this place at this time. School officials had decided the ideal place for the traditional year-end picnic would be the picturesque meadow nearby, owned by school board treasurer Andrew Kehoe. First grade teacher Bernice Sterling was tasked with the chore of phoning the ill-tempered treasurer to get his permission to use the grove. Kehoe didn't have many friends. For his cohorts on the school board, he was an embittered, childless man who fought every expenditure the school board made. Most vehemently, he was against the town's determination and success in building the Bath Consolidated School, a massively expensive undertaking for such a little cornbread town. But the school had grown in its five years to a justified source of pride for the community. Children from every village in the vicinity would be carried by school bus to the farming community to take part in the sparkling new venture. Communities across the state would point to the school's success as a goal to achieve. None of that mattered to Kehoe, however. He cared not about the children or the community's future. He cared only about the taxes, and in fairness, they were exorbitant. In 1922, construction of the two-story T-shaped brick school cost 42 grand, which translates to just over 628,000 today. With 300 residents, less than a third of them children, property taxes in Bath increased considerably. In 1926, Keogh's farm upon which sat the nicest house in town, racked up a yearly tax bill of $350, the equivalent of $5,200 in 
in 2021. It was too damn much, particularly for a man who was more mechanically than agriculturally inclined. Kehoe had a reputation as a brilliant, if not quirky man, with expert machining and electrical skills. Not only was he able to build most any contraption to do any task, he was a master at explosions. Where other farmers would use manual labor to remove the tree stumps that pockmarked their fields, Kehoe would just pack them with dynamite and blow them to smithereens. When others would don coveralls to harvest their crops with oxen and plow, Kehoe would climb aboard his gas-powered tractor in a clean suit and play at being a farmer. His property was neatly ordered, his barn, quote, cleaner than many houses in Bath. But having such skills and equipment did little to help him turn a profit on the farm. He would often leave his crops to spoil in the fields, perplexing neighbors who worked from sunrise to sundown to provide for their families. That he made no actual money on such a prime piece of land became an issue. After years of outright ignoring his mortgage payments, the Kehoes were under threat, a foreclosure, even if that $8,000 mortgage was held by his wife's wealthy family. To have to pay for a schoolhouse that did nothing but take from him was infuriating. That his wife Nellie was ill made matters even worse. For the better part of a year, her health had rapidly declined. She had an uncontrollable cough, migraines, and shortness of breath that landed her in the hospital for months on end, no doubt racking up hospital bills that would also go unpaid. What was thought to be tuberculosis was later determined to be asthma, a far more debilitating condition in the 1920s than it is today. On May the 16th of 1927, Kehoe picked Nellie up from a Lansing hospital and took her home for the last time. The two had married 15 years earlier when she was 36 and he was 40. They would make their home first on the farm he inherited from his father in Tecumseh, then use the proceeds from the sale of it as the down payment on the family-held mortgage and move to Nellie's childhood home in Bath, an 85-acre farm once owned by her beloved dead uncle. It is open to debate whether Kehoe was always grumpy. Some reports indicate he was friendly and helpful. Even the life of the party when he was an electrical engineering student at Michigan State University. He never finished his school there, but instead went to work in St. Louis, where, in some mishap, the details of which are unknown, he fell into a coma after an accident that involved either a fall or electrocution, his sister said. By 1911, when he returned home from college to help on his father's farm, his disposition had been permanently changed. Upon arriving home, he met his twice-widowed father's newest wife, a woman two years Kehoe's junior and, more annoyingly, a roadblock to his inheritance. The happy family with the newly returned son didn't last long. One afternoon, as his young stepmother tried to light the gas stove, it exploded, lighting the woman on fire. Rumors persisted for years that Kehoe, who had witnessed with common difference as the flesh melted from his father's bride, had tampered with the stove to bring about such a result, that he tossed water onto the burning woman, which caused the flaming petroleum on her body to spread, a rookie move for a man who knew better, and this added to the suspicions. It was believed he didn't much care for this woman and her baby, and he aimed to do something about it. 
But if the darkness inside him was coming to light, he kept the demons at bay long enough to convince Nellie, whom he'd met years earlier in college, to marry. And he maintained the facade when it came time to talk to her family into selling him the highly regarded farm in Bath. If it hadn't been for the outrageous taxes of that blasted, useless school, Kehoe said he never would have been in that predicament he found himself, that they all found themselves, in the end. And so, on Tuesday, May 17th of 1927, when first-grade teacher Beatrice Sterling called Kehoe to ask permission to use his grove on Thursday, he spat back an ominous concession. Quote, Well, if you're going to have a picnic, you better have it right away. His growling response was expected. Many in town knew Kehoe could be an ass. One neighbor knew better than most that he could also be violent. He'd witnessed him beat a mare to death. Quote, It was the most brutal exhibition I have ever witnessed. And he shot my dog, too, for no reason at all. He had no friends, a good word for no one. He was just a sullen, mean-tempered, unpleasant personality. The secretary of the school board said Kehoe was miserable to deal with on the board, that he had a tax mania and opposed the board majority in every instance, even going so far as to balk at who was appointed as school bus drivers and fighting against raises for the well-liked superintendent Emery Hike, who Kehoe saw as a spendthrift always with his hand out for something that the fools on the school board just gave him. Still, others said he was a good neighbor, always ready to lend or hand or show off his latest invention or newfangled toy. But neither those privy to his kindness nor those who'd experienced the power of his wrath had any way of knowing that when Kehoe told the teacher she'd better use his field right away, that he literally meant... Right away, this cruel lesson would be learned in short order. Early on Wednesday, May 18th of 1927, as American aviator Charles Lindbergh ready to make the first solo flight from New York to Paris, the students of Bath Consolidated School were humbly getting dressed for the last day of lessons for the year. Mothers across the district were preparing for the end-of-year picnic the following day. Pies were being baked, dishes being made. The children's Sunday bests were drying on the clotheslines. Around 7.30 a.m. in the basement of the school, the janitor, a plumber, and Andrew Kehoe, who often did maintenance for the building to save the district money, looked for a leak in a pipe that was causing low water pressure in the bathrooms. The men weren't in there very long when Kehoe suddenly announced, You know, I am in an awful hurry. Then he turned and left the building. The first bell at 8.30 was electrically powered by a generator that also ran the lights. Though men from consumer power were stringing electrical lines atop power poles in advance of bringing the lights of the Roaring Twenties to the region, on this day, Bath was still powered by gas lamps and generators. And on this day, the generator at the school was not running. 
So the principal was unable to push the button on his desk to set it off. Instead, he had to walk outside and manually ring the bell. A second bell inside the school, powered by battery, would ring in 15 minutes, alerting students they were late. Adabel Dalton was in her fifth grade class when the second bell should have rang. Instead, as she would recount 50 years later, the world around her exploded. All of a sudden, I was suspended in the air. I don't recall hearing any noise or even experiencing a concussion. I was just up in the air, and things were flying right along with me. I remember I could see things between me and the sun, so the walls must have been blown away. And I recall thinking that maybe it was a tornado. First grade teacher Bernice Sterling, who'd spoken the day before to Kehoe, was in her classroom with her little charges marching around for their morning exercise. As she walked to turn off the phonograph playing March of the Tin Soldiers, a blast roared through the building. It seemed as though the floor went up several feet. I went up and thought I hit the ceiling, although it may have been the ceiling coming down. After the first shock, I thought for a moment I was blind. I had to grope my way out. When the blast came, the room seemed to be full of children and flying desks and books. Children were tossed high in the air. Some were catapulted out of the building. Desks and books rose high and descended in a disordered heap. Home economics teacher Evelyn Paul and her students were in a classroom on the first floor of the East Wing when a deafening shock wave and a flash of light filled the room. The teacher clung to her desk as the ceiling fell and splinters pierced her shoulders. Then a stillness came and sunlight could be seen across the room. Most of the children were trapped in the debris, but Evelyn was able to shepherd seven crying girls to the light. Then she climbed out and told the children to jump to her. One by one she caught each as they dropped into her arms. Panic-stricken, with the little girls clinging to her skirts and other tiny hands pressed into hers, she looked around at the horror. The north wing of the building had collapsed. Children were pinned beneath the wreckage, screaming and moaning. Other little bodies thrown from the building lie still in the green grass, in death. The teacher raced with her flock from the destruction of the school into an open field. She gathered the sobbing brood around her, calming them. Then, her senses returned. She knew she could help others. So she told her huddled babes to remain in the field until their mothers came for them, and ran back to the schoolhouse to help. For seven grateful families, that collection of weeping girls found safe in the field became the most beautiful bouquet to ever blossom from any meadow in the world. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. 
It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Teacher Leona Gudenkun's second grade class had just finished one story when her little scholars pleaded for another. It was the last day of lessons for the students, and Leona had prepared work for them to do, but instead, in a move later thought to be divine intervention, she relented and read the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I was telling them the story when the explosion occurred. If I had refused or had finished, the children would not have been in their seats, but would have been gathered at the other end of the room, where the brunt of the explosion was felt. Teachers Hazel Weatherby and Blanche Hart would never recount where they were when the school blew up. Their classrooms were directly above the source of the explosion, a cache of dynamite once used to blast stumps on the Keyhole Farm, but now been woven for optimum damage in the cellar beams. The roof and outer walls around and above them in the north wing pancaked onto the first floor. Among the maze of bricks, wood, and plaster, mostly little bodies were trapped. When rescuers, made up at first of frantic mothers and fathers, heaved and ripped away the rubble, Hazel Weatherby was dying. She was still sitting in her chair, the bodies of two dead children tucked under each arm, their little hands still clasping in fear to her skirt. Leona found her roommate, 
Blanche Hart, pinned in the ruins beneath wood and stone. Though life was draining from her, Blanche spoke sweetly to Leona, offered her friend a smile and words to lighten the mood, then urged Leona to help the others. Those would be the last words Blanche Hart would ever say. At a quarter to nine, not far from the Kehoe farm, Sidney Howe, 61, was working in his yard with his two adult sons and their friend when he heard an explosion from the direction of the school. As the foursome stood wondering if the sound was possibly the school's boiler exploding, a second sound that Hal described as a heavily charged firearm went off at the Kehoe place. Hal looked east and saw smoke rising from a barn there. Just before the gunshot and the smoke, Hal had seen whom he assumed to be Kehoe, running from the house toward the barn. The Howells and the Kehoes had been friendly for about eight years. Mrs. Howell would visit with Mrs. Kehoe frequently, and, just as the others in town knew, they were aware of Nellie's failing health. Two weeks earlier, Sidney Howell had stopped by to give Kehoe some asparagus to take to Nellie in the Lansing Hospital. Howell remembered Kehoe being cooler than he had in the past. His mind seemed to be occupied by something else besides neighbor talk. With smoke rising from the barn, Howell and the three boys jumped into a car and headed to the farm. In the minute it took for them to reach the property, all the buildings, including the house, were ablaze. Through thickening smoke, they could see Kehoe and his truck between the burning corn crib and barn. Then Kehoe drove out of the smoke and toward the men. With wild eyes, he said to the men who'd come to his rescue, Boys, if you are my friends, you better get out of here. You better go down to the school. Howell later recalled, I knew when he gave me that warning, possibly there might be something doing. The group ran back to their car, followed by Kehoe for a short distance, but eventually he passed them and drove directly to the front of the demolished school. Wailing mothers were pawing at the wreckage. The lawn surrounding the once beautiful school was littered with the dead bodies of Bass' youngest residents. Superintendent Emery Hike had been teaching a class on the second floor of the South Wing and had helped his students escape onto a roof and then climb down the building before rushing to a telephone. He was hurrying back to dig out the injured when Kehoe, now coolly standing beside his Ford pickup, spotted him. Kehoe couldn't stand what he perceived as the arrogant Hike. He pointed his anger at the young administrator more than once, blamed him for the cost of the school for what Kehoe perceived as a challenge to his authority on the school board. He attempted to block Hike's suggestions at every turn. But amid this ruin, Kehoe must have looked like everyone else who'd rushed to the scene to help. When Kehoe motioned him over, Hike went. Not far from the men was 35-year-old postmaster Glenn Smith, whose house across the street had been turned into a triage hospital. With Smith was his 70-year-old father-in-law, Nelson McFerrin. Accounts vary. It was either a gunshot into the back seat or a fuse connected to the engine that need only be tripped by turning the ignition. But after a few moments, Kehoe reached inside his truck, and 30 minutes after the first blast at the school, the final explosion for the day thundered from the back seat. Kehoe's body was shredded, sending parts into the trees and raining down in the postmaster's yard where 
rescuers had carried the injured. All that remained of the truck was the motor, and part of the chassis with Kehoe's intestines lodged in the steering wheel. A patch of skull with gray hair identified his parts. The postmaster's legs were blown off. When his brother and wife, who were nearby, reached him, he said, I don't want anyone to feel bad if I go. I've been hit. It's all up to me. He died as the ambulance reached the hospital on a day that marked not only the worst disaster to hit Michigan, but his own 33rd birthday. Hike and Nelson McFerrin were killed instantly. Hike could only be identified by the checkered coat he'd worn and the Masonic ring on his hand. Someone who ran over after the blast picked up his shoe, still containing his foot, and laid that down by the rest of it. McFerrin's shattered and torn body was thrown and rested in a heap against a tree. 72-year-old Martin Milliman had already pulled four children from the building when he spotted Kehoe pull up to the curb and call Hike over. He saw the two men speak briefly. Then he witnessed the explosion and its aftermath. When I saw Mrs. Smith rush over to her husband and gather his broken form into her arms, somehow I lost all strength I had. I was trying to saw off a plank that held a little girl captive in the wreckage, but I couldn't work the saw, and a man beside me said, You better get home. So I did. Back in the wreckage, parents and neighbors, now joined by rescuers from surrounding towns, continued to pluck children from the destruction and to work free the bodies of others. The dead were laid in a row on the grass. Sheets from nearby homes or brought by the scores of converging nurses were placed over the bodies. In some cases, all that could be seen were the shoes, many having been handed down by their fathers, now looking too enormous on the little still feet. Aside from the sounds of the trapped and dying children, the sobs of mothers filled the air. They had rushed to the scene and began the hunt for their babies in the mass of bricks and wood, but when they found the task too impossible, they looked mournfully at the row of sheet-covered bodies and mustered the strength to peek beneath them. One after another, mothers would lift the sheets, look sadly on the little forms, then move to the next until their knees buckled and they fell forever broken beside the ruined bodies of their fallen children. Such a scene was repeated three times for one family. Lost in the blast were three of Eugene and Irene Hart's five children. Lola, 12, Percy, 11, and Vivian, 8. A fourth child, Perry, 17, was critically injured, but survived. For others, like the family of nine-year-old Emerson Metcalf, word of their slaughtered child came by way of friends. Quote, We expected Emerson to come home right up to the last, but about six o'clock a neighbor came in to say Emerson had been found under a blanket. Emerson's 15-year-old sister Emma escaped the school, only to be injured by shrapnel from the blast at Kehoe's car. Several other families lost two children, the Bergen family lost Henry, 14, and Herman, 11. The Zimmermans lost Lloyd, 12, and George, 10. The Bromans lost Robert, 12, and Amelia, 11. 
the Witchels lost cousins Lucille nine and Elizabeth ten. The Halls lost George Jr. eight and Willa eleven. The magnitude of that loss was hard for the remaining young son to fathom. After his parents told six-year-old Billy his siblings weren't coming home, the boy said to his uncle, in a comment that likely haunted him all his days, Now I can have George's overalls and tricycle because he ain't coming home anymore. My mother told me that he wasn't. But for all of the heartbreak, some miracles were seen too. When two men muscled a portion of the fallen roof up, two small children scurried out, unscathed and into the arms of their mothers. Some parents, gripped by fear and convinced their children were dead, later found them at nearby homes or in the hospital. The reunions were as moving as the mournful canvassing of the bodies under the sheets. The horror of Eva Gummins's miraculous survival is another example. The 22-year-old teacher was with her class on the second floor of the North Wing when Kehoe's handiwork ripped through the building, collapsing the roof above her head and the floor beneath her feet. Gubbins was knocked unconscious momentarily. When she came to, she found herself across a radiator, her legs pinned by an immense concrete beam that also trapped and killed a boy pressed against her, his lifeless eyes staring into hers. She was so surrounded by wreckage she couldn't turn her head, only close her own eyes, in prayer. After some time, through an opening near her, teacher Frank Flory, who escaped the blast unharmed and had helped his own students to safety, crawled to her side. He told her he couldn't get her out yet, that others were working to free her. As described in the Lansing State Journal, quote, The band of rescuers spent 45 minutes working like fiends to clear away the wreckage to remove the teacher and the boy. For that length of time, the teacher was conscious, looking into the face of her less fortunate companion of the disaster. End quote. As more of the debris was pulled from the pile, access to the basement was cleared, and members of the state police made entry. What they found inside immediately halted the work. Of course, the north portion of the basement was obliterated, but in the southern intact part, officers could see sticks of undetonated dynamite connected by wires and tucked into the rafters. For all of Kehoe's purported mastery, the wires and battery leading to the unexploded charge failed to carry the spark that would have taken the lives of scores more. In all, 500 pounds of unexploded dynamite enough to decimate the structure and kill every living thing in its walls, was removed from the school. The following spring, another 300 pounds would be found by children playing among the ruins. An inquest in the days after the blast revealed that Kehoe had amassed his arsenal over nine months and spent nights quietly sneaking it into the school. If anyone ever saw him there, and sometimes they did, he'd explain his presence away by claiming some maintenance issue. From the time he hatched his plan in the fall until he set a clock for 8.45 a.m. in the basement of the school, each month being the treasurer, Kehoe would hand-deliver the paychecks to the teacher and strangely say, Well, another month's done. As word of the blast spread across the region, hundreds of sightseers rushed to the tiny hamlet for a chance to gawk at the display. 
A line of cars stretched for miles along every road leading into Bath. News also reached Nellie Kehoe's sisters in the city, and the woman hurried to the office of their attorney for help in finding her. Kehoe had told one of the sisters, who'd called the house two days before the explosion, that he picked up Nellie from the hospital and took her home. But, he explained, she couldn't talk on the phone now, because he'd driven her to Jackson to visit a few days with a friend. After learning what had happened in Bath, the sisters called the friend who said Nellie had never been there. As most of the attention was focused on the schoolhouse, workers with commerce power happened upon the buildings burning on the Kehoe farm and tried to help. Two of the men climbed into a window of the burning home and began putting furniture at the window. One, either stupid or brave, spotted sticks of dynamite and carried those out of the flames too. They found nothing living or dead in the home, what they and investigators did find was that Kehoe not only wired all the buildings together with dynamite in each, but he'd wired the legs of his horses together so they couldn't escape the barn. They found he'd also poured acid on all the shrubbery and removed the bark on all the tree trunks, ensuring they'd die. No one was going to profit from anything he'd had in life, he decided. For 36 hours, Nellie's sisters and law enforcement searched the state for the missing woman. They visited every hospital and asylum around, every friend she'd ever known, interviewed all the neighbors to ask that they'd seen her, but no one had. Then, the following evening, a sightseer was standing alongside a charred cart on the Kehoe farm when he noticed a fleshy blackened puddle of something, human-like, with a patch of fabric stuck to it that matched Nellie's nightgown. On May 19, 1927, the death toll of 38 children and four adults was increased by one. An examination revealed Nellie's skull had been cracked, either by a bludgeoning at the hands of her loving husband or from the heat of the flames. Most believe Kehoe killed his sweet wife first, then tied her body to the cart, placed the family silverware in a box containing banknotes with it, and turned the display into a funeral pyre. If Nellie ever knew the madness that her husband had slipped into, the answer would remain a mystery for the ages. Prior to the bombings, obviously, Kehoe had also mailed a package to the office of the man who ensured his work as treasurer on the school board. Out of either efficiency because he had plenty laying around, or as a sick joke, he'd used a box stamped with the word dynamite. Agents rushed to the bondsman's office to collect what they believed was a bomb. Instead, they found the meticulously kept paperwork for Kehoe's treasury work, with a typewritten letter painstakingly explaining a 23-cent discrepancy in the books. Quote, Due to an uncashed check, the bank had 22 cents more than my books showed when I took them over. Due to an error on the part of the secretary... The bank showed 23 cents more than my books. But what wasn't included in the package was anything that would shed light on the motivation of the man who damaged generations to come in the area. As a matter of fact, the only thing Kehoe left to explain his demented actions was a cryptic sign found fastened to a fence post on his farm. The once-respected man whose ego or illness 
sent his mind into madness, left a message to the world conveyed in neatly stenciled black letters, containing only five stupid words. Criminals are made, not born. I have five words to share in return. Burn in hell. Andrew Keogh. T. Norton for her excellent writing and research on this episode. That wasn't an easy one to get out, but there's always some strange relief once it's over. You just keep reminding yourself that they're dead now, that the suffering stopped at some point. But man, the fear. I don't think there's anything scarier than the thought of being pinned under a bunch of earth or snow or rubble, not knowing which direction is up, unable to move or see or call for help slowly being crushed, suffocated, and for it all to be happening to you as a child. It doesn't get much more terrifying than that. Certainly a dark topic right there. But it's over now, though hopefully not for Kehoe. Burn in hell, as I said. The statement, the wish, feels empty, doesn't it? But to quote former football coach Mike Ditka, Quote, yesterday's history, tomorrow's a mystery, today's a gift, that's why they call it the present. It's all we really do know for certain. Today. Not one of us knows if there are other worlds than this that we will inevitably be transported to, though it's proven that there are certainly countless realities within this one. Tangible realities like prison, poverty, wealth, and whimsy. Psychic realities like optimism and bliss, pessimism and torment. So maybe, hopefully, it keeps on going. Hopefully our souls find their way up or are doomed to be sucked down as a result of our decisions, our lot in this life. I think we will all find ourselves confused and crushed by the dark someday, and that what's truly in our hearts will determine whether we will be rescued, repurposed, pulled from the rubble of our time spent here, and shown the way, or left to dust ourselves off, broken and battered, but equipped with what little we managed to keep pure after a life wasted, a life of harm, selfishness, villainy, made to go again, and tested to see if we can choose well the next time through, haunted by the ghosts of past failures, taught by them through what we only know as our individual nature. It can't just be this when shit like this becomes the result. And I'm clearly stoned. It's high noon. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep those eyes cocked, those doors locked, and stay paranoid. Thank you, everybody. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off. 
buy rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.